0: Give you our lives. We want to be a part of your kingdom. I thank you for that Jesus Christ has come and given us this opportunity that we have to share with each other and that we have an opportunity and a destiny to be with you for eternity. Um, today, Lord, has recognized the sanctity of life here in this country. As I look around our congregation, I see life in all of us thank you lord for giving this life to us for your presence within us that you guide and lead us that you care for us in jesus name amen would like to invite the children to come on down front for the children's story please come on down kids come on down and pull up a chair and sit on the floor I have a PowerPoint for you to look at today, and I also have something to give you. So, boys and girls, uh, it, was, it was actually t- 20, 24 years ago that I, about this time of year, as a matter of fact, I was on a plane going to Russia. And I landed in Moscow, and after a couple of days there, got on an Aeroflot plane and flew to Omsk in Siberia. In order to go to Russia, you first of all have to send your passport to a Russian consulate and get a visa. And this was a look, this is what the visa was that I got my last trip to Russia, which was in 2010. That's already been 13 years ago when I went to Rostov on Don again for I think the fourth or fifth time. So you can see the Russian printing. Some of you know how to read. Can you see those funny letters? That's called Cyrillic. Alphabets different from the English alphabet. You can see my name: Wick David Harry, which in Russia is vik David Harry, like that. Okay, those are the Russian letters, and it's got my passport number. It's got my birthday, but it isn't 316 1946, because they put the date first, then the month: 16346. uh... is man, and uh, and then we've got uh, some other code that they had, and then it says, religiognia uh, Biela. And then it says, 007. <laughs> you know why they're laughing? Because 007 was the name of a fictitious British spy, James Bond, 007. I was also licensed, James Bond. The 007 was a license to kill. This was a license to save. So let's, uh, in case you doubt it, here's a blow-up. There you go. I am 007. I was an agent of Jesus sent into, the, into Russian to preach the gospel. Let's look at the last slide. I put these two slides up so that you will speak, because there is some confusion, but I'm not the guy standing next to the Aston Martin DB5. I'm the guy on the way back from Russia standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. I know we look a lot alike. Now, I want to give each one of you this license. This is a license that reflects something that it says in the Bible. And it says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. And the Apostle Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ, and we have been given an assignment, and that assignment is to plead for people to be reconciled to God. That means that people are not God's friends, but he was pleading for people to become a friend of God. In other words, to come to know Jesus Christ as their personal fit Savior. And boys and girls, do you know that every Christian, everybody who has Jesus in their heart, has gotten this assignment from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, to be an agent for Jesus. You too are all 007 licensed to save. Okay, you can take your seats. Goodbye gone. If any of you out here want to have a license, you're welcome to see me afterwards. You can do it without a license for that matter. All right, there you go. Well, we are in the book of Acts, still here today, as we're coming close to the end of the book of Acts. Today in the 24th chapter of Acts and uh, really the entire chapter, uh, Paul before Felix. Now we've seen in previous weeks, we've seen the Apostle Paul as he was in in the hands of the mob. And then we've seen the Apostle Paul before the Sanhedrin and then rescued from the Sanhedrin and finally being shipped off Uh, after his address before the council of the Sanhedrin to Caesarea, or Caesarea, which is another way to say that, where he stands before the government, the governor Felix. What, What is this all about for us? Again, is this just a travelogue or an interesting history? Why did the Holy Spirit, working through the pen of Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, why, why did the Holy Spirit give this to us? So that we know Bible facts? No, this is, this is an example, a case study. And again, we find ourselves in similar situations. And more and more, our world is like what the apostle Paul was experiencing. The chaos of the mob the the corruption of the Sanhedrin, the official court of the Jews, and now in the hands of the Roman government, of the Roman governor. It is increasingly obvious that, as the old hymn says, this vile world is no friend of grace. Things are broken in this world. Systems that we depend on, are not working like they're supposed to. You read this past week, there are several school districts in the state of Virginia. They hired a consultant, paid him $450,000 a year in order to ensure that there would be equity of outcome amongst their students in the high schools of these school districts in Virginia. And they told them to do whatever had to be done. Now, to achieve equity of outcome, that means that those who are on the bottom have to come up. But he found another way to do it. He made sure that the ones on the top came down. So there were 13 students who took the SAT test with a sufficiently high score to win national merit scholarships. And at his advice, these school districts never notified the students that they had qualified for a national merit scholarship. The parents only found out about it after the fact. Brilliant students with very high SAT scores who would have excelled in any college anywhere won't be going to those colleges because that money is not available to them. Does that sound equitable to you? That's an interesting way to achieve equity. If you can't lift up the bottom, then bring down the top, you see. Of course, that's pretty much what taxation has always done. It's a transfer of wealth from some people to other people. If people are in need, that's one thing, but the system's broken. Some years ago, I may have told a story to some of you. Who knows? I might have told it before to you. Too bad you're going to hear it again. Uh, in Philly, um, there were two boys from our church, uh, uh, Foley and Paul, who played on this high school basketball team. They were both starting for Northeast High School which, by the way, is the high school that Sylvester Stallone went to when he was in Philadelphia. So they went to Rockies High School in northeast Philly. And they they made it to the city quarterfinals. And for a a team with white kids on it in Philadelphia to make it to the quarterfinals was truly amazing. And and both Paul and Foley were very good basketball players. Anyway, so the quarterfinal game was at, at Edison High School in Philly. And I went to the game walked into the gymnasium. There were no lights on. There was was light coming in from big windows that were up near the top of of this big auditorium, this big gym. Most of the windows were broken. It was February, end of February. It was cold. It was probably about 45 degrees inside the gym. And there were pigeons flying around inside. The scoreboard didn't work. The lights weren't on. But there was enough light coming in to play basketball. I I think they lost. I think they were pretty competitive in that game, but as I believe they lost, I don't think they went past the quarterfinals. But at any rate, afterwards, they they said, you should have seen the locker room. The locker room was down in the basement below the gym. They went down some steps, and they were stopped by the janitor. They said, well, you guys will have to take your shoes and socks off and roll up your pant legs. Because there was about 8 to 10 inches of cold water on the floor of the basement. Ice-cold water. They sloshed through that to the locker room, which was also underwater, and they had to get into their uniform and, you know, put their shoes, well, they actually put their, had to put their shoes on upstairs because otherwise they'd get wet. As they were walking down the hall, said Paul said, I couldn't believe it. We walked past a classroom. There were about 30 students sitting in that classroom. They were wearing their overcoats and their hats and their gloves, and they all had rubber boots on because they're sitting in that much ice-cold water. There were no lights on in the classroom, only the light that was coming in from window wells. They were in the basement. The Philadelphia public school system's broken, would you say? What do those kids think about our government? Boy, they really care about us, don't they? I mean, that's as bad as it gets. And it's that way in Detroit. It's broken, absolutely broken. There was a special there about some news crew had been to a local high school and discovered that the gym needed repair and there the ba- ba- backboards, basketball backboards were broken and there were no basketballs, and so they repaired them. I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's a great story, except what in the world is the school district doing? I thought it was the school board's job and the principal's job to keep the gym in repair. No basketballs and no basketball hoops in a high school in the city of Detroit? What is wrong? It's broken. Doesn't anybody care? I bet they have diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, though. The system's broken. The system is contrary to the people it's supposed to serve in many, many instances, and I still think we're the greatest country in the world. That's how bad the world is. And we're going to find, as time goes on, as if we maintain our Christian witness, that it's going to become increasingly difficult to deal with those who are in charge of us. And here's the Apostle Paul walking into a situation that didn't start well. It started with a mob, and then it went on to a corrupt Sanhedrin, basically the Supreme Court of the Jews, which was against them, which broke the laws of the Old Testament in the process of trying him, and then went on into the hands of the Romans, a guy named Felix. After five days, chapter 24, the high priest Ananias came down to Caesarea. By the way, came down because, not because it's, this is actually north of Jerusalem and we think everything north is up. I, we're up in Minnesota, but you're always down when you come down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the highest point. So he went actually literally down to Caesarea. The high priest Ananias comes down with some elders and a spokesman, one turtle, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began accusing, to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Most excellent Felix... The Roman governor, let me tell you about Felix, there was absolutely nothing most excellent about him. He was as bad as the Board of Education in Detroit and Philadelphia. He was appointed procurator of Judea by the Emperor Claudius in the year 52, AD 52. At the request of the Jewish high priest at the time, whose name was Jonathan. According, according to the Roman historian Tacitus, Felix exercised the authority of his office, and I quote, with all manner of cruelties and excesses. He managed to alienate the affections of Drusilla, who was Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa II's sister, from her husband, King Azizus of Emesa, who left him, she left her husband to marry Felix. So he was a wife-stealer. Immoral. And then Felix proceeded to persecute the zealots. You remember the zealots? One of them was a disciple of Jesus, Simon Zelotes, Simon the zealot. He persecuted the zealots. He sent their leader in chains to Rome, and he crucified zealots by the thousands. We don't have many public executions here anymore. We don't have public ones at all. We don't have executions hardly at all. If you, if you go to death row, you end up spending years there, as the case goes through appeals, before they finally gas you or electrocute you or give you a lethal injection. But uh, one, of the, one of the problem to execute people for Felix, he nailed the people to crosses and put the crosses up by the roadsides, not by the tens or the dozens, but by the thousands, wiping out the zealots. Meanwhile, there was a group called the Sakari, or the Daggers who were far more dangerous and violent than the zealots, because they he could manipulate to his own ends, including the murder of the very high priest, Jonathan, who had lobbied in Rome for his appointment as governor. You know, this reminds me of a line I heard about Hitler. The more I hear about this guy, the less I like him. He's not a very likable guy, is he? He went to war with other Jewish fanatics, including an Egyptian Jew and his followers, who attempted to drive the Romans from Jerusalem, but were soundly defeated. Tertullus says, "Through you, we enjoy much peace." Well, I'll say, as long as you crucify thousands of people, it tends to quell any form of rebellion. It was a sick joke. Felix's reign was characterized by anarchy and open violence between the priestly classes in Jerusalem. It's like the mostly peaceful protests of our own day. Remember that CNN reporter standing in front of the burning buildings on Lake Street in South Minneapolis saying, it's a mostly peaceful protest. It's a joke. This is the Roman, this Felix, this corrupt, violent, vicious aggressor, to whom paul's destiny was entrusted what are the chances anybody want to make a bet about how this would turn out if you didn't already know the end most excellent felix not a good situation by the way whatever happened to felix he ended up finally overdoing it attempting to quell a quell a rebellion right in caesarea Uh, With the violence that he used was so offensive to his superiors in Rome that he was called back to Rome and put on trial and narrowly missed being condemned to death. So things didn't end very well for him either. But in Caesarea, the system was broken, most excellent. What a joke. Application of this. What does this mean for us? We are also living with increasingly corrupt systems. Not to mention, I'm sorry to say, it, with gross incompetence. Can our congresspeople finally get it together at some point? Do you wonder? Is anybody in doubt? How are we doing at the head of the whole thing? The chief guy who doesn't know how those papers got in the, in the garage with his Corvette. It's, isn't does Isn't anybody? Am I the only guy who's worried about this? We're in trouble. So was the apostle Paul. I mean, can you see? The same kind of situation. We got people in charge who are immoral, who are corrupt, who are incompetent, who are prepared to do anything to achieve their political ends, irregardless of the common good, just like with the Apostle Paul. And what was the end result for Paul? God's will was achieved. God's will was achieved, not because of Felix, but in spite of Felix. Because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like a stream of water. He turns it whithersoever he will. They didn't have garden hoses back in Solomon's day, but that's the picture I get. I mean, God can take the most corrupt, the most incompetent, the most vicious individuals and bring about what he wants to have happen because that's who our God is. He's in charge. He's in control. Amen. Right? So I would be far, far more worried about it when I, when I start, I have to check myself and say, wait a minute, who's really running this show? When I think of things in the Bible, it isn't any different today. It isn't any better today. I'm not sure it's any worse today. It's, it's always been like this to some degree or another. And God is still in charge. He's still on the throne. Now, let's go on with this passage. Tertullus brings the charges against the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 4, To detain you no further, I, I imagine at this point, by the way, that Felix is already showing some signs of impatience. All right, get on with it, get on with it. To detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness, which he didn't have any, to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul now, there's the charge, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him by examining him yourself. You will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. So the charges, he's a worldwide troublemaker. He belongs to a sect called the Nazarenes, and he's their ringleader. He attempted to profane the temple. Now, there's some, let's say, there's some source to this stuff because Paul had traveled all over the world, and he was identified with a follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus, who were called the Nazarenes, but he hadn't attempted to profane the temple. Quite the opposite, he was in the temple to fulfill a Jewish vow as a faithful Jew, and he hadn't brought any Gentiles into the temple. But Let's remember something here. There are all kinds of charges that are often made. We see them all the time. And sometimes we say, Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's smoke, there's fire. These are terrible charges. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Had he been all over the world? Yes, he had. Was he, a, was he in this sect called the Nazareth? Yes, he is. Well, then he must have profaned the temple. But no, he hadn't. Robert Kennedy famously said, Where there's smoke, there's a smoke-making machine. In the world of politics, where there's smoke, there isn't necessarily fire. It's just disinformation. Paul was a victim of this. So then Paul makes his defense in verses 10 to 21. When the governor had nodded him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, I want to make this a a contrast to what Turtleus says. Since through you we enjoy most peace, most excellent governor, and so on. Paul just says, for many years you've been a judge over this nation. That's just a fact. He had his job for a long time. All right, since you've been a judge for a long He doesn't say you're most excellent or that you're a good person. just you've been a judge for a long time. So I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me but this i confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect i worship the god of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets having a hope in god which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection by the way that tells us It was Pharisees that came down to Caesarea to bring this charge. One of Paul's own political party went with him. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Paul makes his defense. No flattery, just the facts. Verse 11, only 12 days ago, not enough time for so much mischief of which he was accused. And then Paul points out he was really the victim, not the disputant in these matters. The accusers, verse 13, had no hard evidence to bring against them. And by the way, the very people that brought the charge initially, who were from Ephesus, some Jews from Ephesus, who said that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, were not present to make this accusation. They had no hard evidence. They they never showed up to press their case. There was no case. And so the way also is not a sect, but rather fulfills Judaism, worships the God of Abraham, and believes in the fulfillment of prophecy. And then he says, I'm a believer in the resurrection, even like some of these Jews. So again, there's nothing to see here, basically, is his defense. And then Paul says something interesting in verse 16, that he has made, always makes pains. He said, I always take pains to have a clear conscience both toward God and towards men. It's very important to maintain a clear conscience. Paul makes this clear in some of these his other letters. He tried to make sure that there was nothing actually that he could be charged with that he had done wrong. He tried to mend his fences if they were broken. He made sure that he didn't violate the law. Interesting claim, because the accusers that came to him couldn't claim a clear conscience. They knew that they were lying. They knew they didn't have a case against him. and Felix had a very guilty conscience. But Paul's saying, but I have a clear conscience. Now, verse 17, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So why was he in the temple? To cause trouble, to violate the temple? No! He had raised money for relief of the Jews who were suffering from a famine in Judea. He was an alms-bearer. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. He was carefully keeping the Jewish law without any crowd or tumult. But from some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here to make the accusations should they have anything against me. Or else let these these men themselves say, what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial to this day." In other words, yes, I did disrupt the Sanhedrin. But let's face the facts here. When Paul did that, he wasn't creating division. He only revealed it. There was a deep division and violent hatred between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Paul had done nothing to create that. All he did was exploit it. Guilty as charged that I would reveal this division that's already there so let us be careful to maintain a clear conscience first peter chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 having a good conscience so that when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be god's will than for doing evil And Peter is raising the possibility that it may indeed be God's will for us to suffer. And Scripture is elsewhere explicit. Jesus' will for us, we saw this last week, is what? That we have tribulation. In the world, he said, you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might have tribulation. He said you will have tribulation. And the Apostle Paul confirmed this saying that everyone who tries to live a godly life as a Christian will be persecuted. We're going to have trouble, but let's have it with a clear conscience. Let's be sure that we know that we are not suffering from doing anything wrong. I hope this helps you like it helps me to resist temptation, to think about how my decisions and my behavior conforms to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I a good example? For Jesus' sake... And so that I might stand before any accusers, any accusations, any slanders with absolutely no doubt in my mind that I'm innocent of those things of which I was charged. If I have to suffer for wrongdoing, so be it. It's only what I deserve. But if I suffer for wrongdoing and I don't deserve it, then glory be to God and great will be my reward in heaven. That's the promise that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. If we suffer For righteousness' sake, our reward in heaven will be great, and therefore I should glorify God for my problems. It's very hard to do that when we're hurting, but we ought to remember what Jesus said and welcome the suffering that we have to endure for the sake of righteousness. Now, Felix hears about all of this, and he gives his decision in the following verses. Verses 22 and 23. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, which, by the way, he probably got from his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew, and and by the way, it might not have been negative information that he had from her. (laughs) Having a rather more accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. In other words, I want to hear a personal report from Lysias, so we'll just put it off. Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he puts it off. There is no decision. It's it's postponed until I can hear from Claudius Lysias, the tribune, who intervened in the first place. Now, when did that meeting take place? The 12th of never. It was scheduled, and that's when it happened. Never happened. Never took place. There was no, it was just, this was just blue, blue smoke and mirrors at this point in the park. He's just putting them out. He doesn't want to make a decision. But meanwhile, he's going to keep Paul in custody. So then after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he's looking for a bribe. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Of course, Felix uh, doesn't say this here, but the reason he had to be succeeded was that he was arrested and shipped off to Rome for trial. So the trial is postponed on a pretext. Drusilla is the source of the information, and now we get Paul's personal meeting with Felix. There's a painting that's done by... Hungarian artist, I'm probably going to say his last name incorrectly. I think it's Mankachi Every Easter season, this painting would be, dem- would be portrayed set up in the uh, main court of the Wanamaker's Department Store in Philadelphia, and it was a big painting. I think the painting was, would easily fit into the size of this hole between these two pillars here. Gigantic painting. The painting's called Christ Before Pilate. And if you Google it, you'll see copies of it at various levels of <laughs> pixels. You want to get a big file so you can appreciate the color. Pilate is seated, kind of looking down. Jesus is standing with his hands bound before him, looking at Pilate. And almost everybody who looks at that painting realizes something the longer they look at it, that it is Pilate, who is on trial and not Jesus. Jesus is blameless, sinless. Jesus has the ultimate clear conscience. Pilate is sort of the fumbling, bumbling, incompetent, trying to make his way in the political world of Rome, failing yet again to come to the right decision. He's failing the test. And here we have Felix who's a much more incompetent, bumbling, and vicious figure than Pilate ever was, failing the test royally. Paul shares the gospel with him. Talks to him about what? Talks to him about righteousness, of which Felix knew nothing. Talks to him about self-control, of which Felix had none. And then talks to him about the coming judgment for which Felix was completely unprepared. No wonder he became alarmed. And what does he do about it? He does nothing. He puts off the decision there as he put off the decision on Paul's fate. We'll talk about it later, but later all he really wanted to do was probe Paul to see if he could raise some money and come up with a bribe and and get himself off. When I get the opportunity... He says, no repentance and faith when I get the opportunity. So I don't know about all of you here. I hope you're not Felix, who when you hear the gospel recognize that you have no righteousness, which is true for all of us. There is no righteousness of our own that's going to get us into heaven. Who when you hear the gospel realize that you failed in an area of self-control. You haven't been able to not sin. Sometimes you're able to, but sometimes you're not. And the times that you're not kind of erases all the efforts you made when you did exercise self-control. Felix had no self-control at all. Maybe you realize that. And then you hear that one day there's going to be a reckoning, that Jesus is coming back, and that he's coming back to judge the world in righteousness, and there's no wiggle room there whatsoever. And by the way, if you look at John 16, verse 7, let's turn back to that. Gospel of John, 16th chapter, 7th verse. If you've got your Bible, look at that. This is very interesting. What was Paul referring to here? Jesus teaching about the work of the Holy Spirit. I did it again. I've got the wrong reference, I think. Oh, it's not 7, it's 9. What does the Holy Spirit do? When he comes, he will convict the world concerning... Sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the, world, the ruler of this world is judged. Isn't that interesting? Paul is just picking up this teaching of Jesus and applying it to Felix. And it's applied to all of us. Where is our righteousness? Where is our self control? and are we prepared for judgment and even in the lives of believers there are things where righteousness has been lacking I have no ground when I stand before Jesus at the final judgment to claim my righteousness is the reason for him to save me therefore I need his righteousness and that's the whole point of why he died for me so that his righteousness might be imputed to my account What I have will never measure up, but his is more than sufficient for all of our sins. It's all covered, it's all forgiven in him. Righteousness and self-control, I'm always going to fail at some point. I I, I can get better and better, and I should be striving to get, but there's always going to be times when I stumble. I I lose my temper, I slip. I I, I become afraid when I shouldn't be afraid, and so we're going to slip, but Jesus makes up for that with his goodness, with his grace, and he forgives. And I will stand at the final judgment assured that I'm going to pass muster because for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 tells me, there is no condemnation. Praise the Lord for that. This is the same message that Felix was given, what I'm telling you. This is what Paul is explaining to him. And his response is to be alarmed and to put off a decision for another day. And we know for a fact in his case that day never came. So we know where he's spending eternity. I've been at many funerals where the preacher, who wasn't me, said, as this brother or sister now is looking down at us from heaven, and I think to myself, how do you know that? How do you know they're not looking up at us from the other place? How do you know that? But I've done many funerals and I've been in other funerals when somebody can say something like that, at least I can say, I know that this brother or sister is with the Lord Jesus now in heaven. Why? Because when their time came and they were confronted with the gospel, they recognized that their own righteousness was not enough to save them, that there was sin in their life, that they lacked self-control, and that the only hope for them to be prepared for judgment was to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Don't be Felix and say, we'll talk about this another time. And may there be an urgency as we're studying Now, about evangelism, personal evangelism, just bring it. it's it's a review. You know, I'm not the great teacher here that's teaching something you don't already know. But when we deal with this, let's have a sense of urgency as we realize that everybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ is like Felix. They lack righteousness, they lack self-control, and they are not ready for the day of judgment. And the one thing that can save them is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And you know how to share that. And so be relentless, be persistent, be patient, and stay on your mission. You know the Apostle Paul, who I'm sure knew all about Felix. Felix's record was well known in the ancient world. Nobody really admired this guy at all. Paul could have said to himself, well, you know, here's a day I can take off from sharing the gospel. You know, I don't think Paul ever said that. Do you? He never took a day off. Even with Felix, he stood before him and he told him the truth, told him what he needed to do to find new life in Christ. And he didn't do it. He stayed on his mission. I think I shared a story about a pastor I met once in Chicago, Pastor Lyons pastor's in the Humble Park neighborhood. <clears throat> it's a tough neighborhood. And I know, I, I'm pretty sure I shared the story of, of his experience with a, when a porn shop opened up. This was years ago. And, and uh, there was protests against this in the neighborhood and so on. And, and so he kind of cut to the chase and went into the place and shared the gospel with the owner who responded unlike Felix and the porn shop was shut down. The guy went into another business. I like that. He also did the same thing with a high school counselor who was, who was openly gay and who was pointing young people in the wrong direction. And rather than, as some people had done, were writing letters to the school board to try to get the guy fired and so on, and it wasn't getting anywhere, of course, he went in and met with a guy and shared the gospel with him, and the guy recognized that he needed Christ and came to Christ, and his life turned around. You know, sometimes we want to go the long way around when the direct way is the best way. And even with Felix... Paul took the direct way. So let's not be shy about sharing the gospel and staying on our mission. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, sometimes we despair as we look at this world around us and we wonder what what is this world coming to? What's happening to our nation? What's happening to our city? Why, Why do we need a casino, a racino. Why why are these decisions being made? I think of our own hometown now. They're talking about having, you know, marijuana legalized and sports betting legalized. And we wonder, what in the world are these people thinking? We know that these things are not according to your will, not according to your purpose, and we could just kind of give up. And then we... We have a time like this when we sit down with a word, and, and the example of the Apostle Paul pops up, and we recognize things weren't any better in his day. They weren't any easier for him. They were probably much more difficult. And yet here was a man who never gave up. He kept looking to you and he kept on mission. And Lord, help us to be help us to be those people like him. Help us to be that kind of a church. That in the face of increasing persecution and negativity. We never give up proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and holding up the light of the world. In whose name we pray, amen.